This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings and welcome to the November episode, listeners. I'm editor Chris Bramley and I'm joined on the podcast today by production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, news editor Elizabeth Pearson will be talking to Emma Chapman about her new book on the ancient epoch when the universe's first stars burst into light. And we'll be telling you our top stargazing tip to see in this month's night sky. But now we're going to take a look at what we found out while putting together the November issue of the magazine. And one of the things that stood out for me this issue is the news that a new solar cycle has officially begun. Yes, the sun's activity has been steadily climbing since December 2019. Now, the Solar Cycle 25 Prediction Panel, that's a group of professional solar astronomers, has established this was when solar minimum took place. The sun takes around 11 years to cycle from one minimum to the next. And if the sunspots continue to follow their current trend, the panel predict the peak of solar activity in Cycle 25 will happen sometime between November 2024 and March 2026. This peak, otherwise known as solar maximum, means more activity on the sun, more sunspots, more solar flares and more coronal mass ejections too. This means there's more chance of damage to space equipment, satellites in Earth orbit and uh, then outages in the communications and location services that use them. But that's not the only effect this increase in solar weather has on Earth. It also means there's a strong likelihood there'll be bigger and brighter auroral displays here on Earth during that time. Neil, what about you? What is What's caught your eye in this issue? Well, it's been a very exciting time for observing Mars recently, with the planet reaching one of its best oppositions in recent times on the 13th of October. And our feature, the red planet, an amber growing bright, highlights just how good the months after opposition will be for observing Mars as its diameter remains above six arc seconds until next March. Not only is this still the best chance to see the red planet this decade with the naked eye, but you'll get a great view of its salmon pink colour with binoculars. And with a telescope, you can really get to know its features through the seasons, from dark albedo features like 
acidalium that are reshaped by dust storms to the clouds that form over its south polar cap. Or in the north, Olympus Mons, a vast volcano that's 21 kilometres high, almost three times the height of Everest. The article will help you get the most from your observing throughout the Martian year. Yeah, I've seen, I had, had a look at Mars last night it, the, and this weekend is looking pretty clear. So I, I'm going to get the telescope out. I haven't seen it in the telescope yet, but um, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, seen it with binoculars. It's You can definitely make out the disc with my um, pair of 10 by 50s, but I'm really looking forward to seeing if I can see some of those uh, those dark features on Mars. So fingers crossed for clear skies. Have you seen it at yeah. all, Neil? Uh, yeah, I've looked through binoculars. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of light pollution where I am, and oh, it's, right. it's yeah. shining yeah. so bright in the sky. And, yeah. Uh, again, I've seen the disc. It looks looks yeah. great. It's so high up, isn't it? I mean, it's um, it's forty degrees in altitude above the horizon, so it's kind of halfway up to directly ahead. Um, so it really is, you know, a distinctive sight. One of the big things we're covering in the November issue is a milestone in human spaceflight, uh, the 20th anniversary of crewed operations aboard the International Space Station. On no- 2nd of November 2000, the station's first crew, Expedition 1, docked with the ISS and floated aboard, and there's been an unbroken human presence in space aboard the orbiting lab ever since. To put a figure on it, there have been 240 visitors to the ISS in the past two decades, and they're a truly international bunch coming from the EU, North America, Brazil, Malaysia, South Africa, the UAE and Kazakhstan, to name but a few. This is really a reflection of the multinational way in which the ISS was constructed and is run to this day. It's a triumph really, of human achievement in how best to plan and coordinate and monitor the ISS's multiple activities across its many participating nations and organisations. Currently, there are 15 countries collaborating on it and five separate national space programmes. They cover resupply, financing, maintenance and providing the trained crew in return for ownership of the parts they supply and the ability to perform science experiments in microgravity. The ISS really is an engineering marvel. It's the largest structure ever built in space, weighing in at around 420,000 kilograms. That's more than 320 cars. And measuring up at 109 metres, longer than a football pitch. It took 13 years to construct, from when the first Russian module was launched into orbit in 1998 to 2011, with 37 shuttle flights ferrying 44 separate modules all to be assembled in low Earth orbit. Most of these were built in the US, while four were built by Russia, three by Japan, and one each by Canada and Europe. Some of this building work was done remotely, but some could only be done by hand, and there have been 231 spacewalks to date to construct and maintain the space station. But that's not all the astronaut crew do with their time aboard the space station, is it, Neil? No, it's not. I've been um, looking into some of the more unusual activities they take part in. Um, And some of them, it's fair to say, are safer than others. And some of them more entertaining than others. Yeah, there's a lot of experiments that go on on the the space station. And ISS astronauts are often the subject of experiments themselves. 
as they help scientists understand the effects that long stays in space can have on the human body. And what's one such example is 2015, when identical twins Scott and Mark Kelly took part in a NASA experiment where astronaut Scott spent a year in space and his brother Mark stayed on the ground to see how a year of weightlessness affects the human body. In space, Scott experienced decreased body mass, swelling in major blood vessels, changes in eye shape, metabolic shifts, inflammation, as well as a strange lengthening of the protective structures at the end of chromosomes. All the time, NASA was able to compare him with his twin back on Earth. Fortunately, after he turned, Scott was pretty much back to normal within six months. And perhaps a more quirky Earth-space comparison took place in 2016 when astronaut Tim Peake became the first man to run a marathon in space, completing the London Marathon on board the ISS attached by a harness to the T2 treadmill. He took three hours and 35 minutes and synchronised his start time with the race itself. The actual marathon is 26 miles, but taking into account the relative velocity of the station as it circles Earth, it meant he covered more than 53,000 miles during his run. (laughs) Oh, my word. (laughs) That's quite a a distance. (laughs) Yeah. But he did get a little bit of help there, didn't he, really? Yeah. He'd actually run the real London Marathon eight years earlier with a finishing Mm. time difference of only 17 minutes. Wow. That's pretty good going, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's um, it's also worth noting that all ISS astronauts have to undertake exercise for two hours every day in order to prevent bone and muscle deterioration. Um, there's been many unusual activities that go on on the ISS. In 2015, Samantha Cristoforetti posted a selfie of herself drinking the first espresso in space out of a zero-G cup. And there's been a whole list of memorable musical instruments played and songs performed, perhaps notably Chris Hadfield with his rendition of David Bowie's Space Odyssey, mm. 2016. Mm. I still remember that so clearly. You know, it's four years ago now, but um, yeah, it was quite a, quite a nice video that, wasn't it? Him floating <laughs> yeah. through with, the, with just the right kind of music. Bowie playing in the background, so good. Yeah, It's also interesting to take a look at what happens when things don't quite go to plan. For example, what happens if an item accidentally gets dropped outside the station? Astronauts have to be extra careful when conducting spacewalks to not drop things. As the ISS completes an orbit around 28,000 kilometres an hour, an object could end up hitting them 90 minutes later. So everything is either tethered to a spacesuit or the station itself. If something is dropped, they have to immediately report its mass, velocity, direction, travel and dimensions as dropped items become satellites in their own right. Examples of lost property include a wire tether lost in 2018 and a 1.5 metre long cloth shield the year before. Go further back and in 2008, a tool bag was lost that was valued at $100,000 Plus wow. some pliers, <laughs> yeah, and the pliers and a camera were also lost floating around in 2007. Mm. Uh, but the good news is that most of these lost objects don't remain a risk as they enter Earth's atmosphere and burn up. Oh, that's good, yeah. So they're not kind of just added to the space junk orbiting, no. orbiting Earth. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Although researching it, I noticed that there are links to the tool bag that was lost. People actually reckoned they could see it uh, orbiting. Goodness <laughs> me. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, it is amazing how uh, much detail you can see with large amateur telescopes. You can, you know, really good image, skilled images are able to pick out great detail on the ISS. You can see individual solar panels and that kind of thing. So, but to be able to see a tool bag, <laughs> that's that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it must be awful when you lose a lose a bit of equipment on a spacewalk, and you know your kind of first reaction. Um, my first reaction would be kind of just to reach out and grab it, but it just floats away slowly and, uh, you know, grab, reach too far and something awful could happen, couldn't you, if you're out in kind of yeah. vacuum of space. But I suppose the astronauts are tethered to the to the ISS, aren't they, when they're outside yeah. and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. You know, even if so they do forget where they are, there's still, <laughs> there's still no, no risk of them floating off in orbit, is there? yeah. There must yeah. be that really frustrating moment where they realise realize they've got to the end of their own tether and they can't reach out any further because yeah, yeah. it floats off. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's it. I've got to. I've got to confess to the um, to NASA now or, or Roscosmos that uh, I've dropped my tool bag. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. There's there's some more alarming incidents. Talking right. of spacewalks, um, in 2014, astronaut Luca Palmitano spent nearly an hour floating in space as his helmet filled with water and up to 1.5 litres uh, engulfed his eyes, nose and ears. Um, and when his spacewalk ended, NASA acknowledged the mishap could have been much more serious. It was apparently caused by a blocked water separator in his suit. Mm-hmm. But it was 33 minutes after reporting the problem before he could take his helmet off, where he had to endure the water. So it was just slowly, slowly kind of filling up inside his helmet. Yeah. His helmet was basically becoming a goldfish bowl, a fish bowl. Oh, that does agony, mustn't it? Yeah. And he had to get back to the station with all that going on. Yeah. And go through the airlock and, you know, kind of, Get reach the get the right pressure to be able to take this thing off. Oh, yeah, that must have been awful. Yeah, goodness me, so, yeah, yeah, that could have been a lot worse, couldn't it? There's also a mystery that's worth mentioning. In August 2018, a small two meter hole was found in the side of the ISS in the living quarters, causing a loss of air pressure. It was found in the Soyuz transport spacecraft that was doubling up as living quarters after it arrived. Astronauts took a spacewalk to find out the whole source in case it was the result of a meteoroid impact. But then the evidence suggested that it must have been drilled from the inside. There are various theories about what caused the mystery hole, but it seems likely it was actually made on the ground beforehand as a result of a faulty repair job. Fortunately, it was plugged successfully by the crew with epoxy resin and gauze. Oh, my goodness. Bit of a bit of a bodge job. <laughs> Quick, yeah. Could it fill it up? That's crazy, isn't it? So they reckon it was done during when it was being manufactured. Yeah, um, yeah. And and no, and nobody nobody kind of confessed. Nobody confessed. Nobody owned that. The yeah. how, it's crazy how it how it could have. Um, it was orbiting for what months, years before it was actually noticed. 
this yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? That's um, crazy. So I wonder where yeah. maybe there was some kind of um, some machinery or, or other equipment blocking the hole inside in the kind of pressurised living quarters and then that was moved and then and then you know it suddenly there's a sudden loss of you know pressure pressure from from the hole um yeah goodness me quick put your yes. quick put your finger over it until we can <laughs> yeah. until we can bang it up with something else <laughs> goodness well, i think yeah. that's what they had had to do reading well, about it they had to yeah. someone had to put their finger over it well they found the stuff to to fix it good lord yeah. Wow, that's quite something. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that it's not. They haven't. Had, they didn't have to evacuate the whole thing, and it's still uh, being used. So that that sounds like it's. Um, it was uh, yeah, good for now. It's funny actually because um, having said that, it, um, the ISS is is at now actually at a, at a critical turning point because um, in a similar way to the commercial rocket launches that have been so successful in recent years, NASA is now working to open the ISS up to commercial spaceflight too. And that's not just for kind of marketing purposes. I think there have been some, um, you know, kind of brands and, and stuff have, have kind of flown trainers up to the ISS and and uh, there's been some uh, coffee. Espresso was made on the ISS and stuff, wasn't it, in the, in the past? Yeah. Um, no, there are there are actually wide plans to privatise actual ISS operations, um, and that's because um, because of the cost of of running the ISS. It's, it, the yearly the yearly maintenance cost of the ISS is three to four billion pounds a year, and that's around half of NASA's yearly spaceflight budget. So it's a tremendous wedge of money that. Uh, and w- with NASA's plans to build this new space launch system and the Orion crewed module, you know that that. I th- they're really looking to kind of um, move that money to to those kind of projects now. But it's a good. I think it's a very good thing that you know the the commercial space industry has come on leaps and bounds in the past, even in the past couple of years, um, and is now much more in much much more of a better place to kind of fulfil that role. However, the ISS does have a lifespan barring uh, manufacturing defects like the one we were just uh, the one you were just say, talking about Neil um, thankfully there haven't been any more of those um, to have been identified since that um, hole was discovered so the lifespan um, is is there's probably about eight years left on the ISS uh, the plan is to retire it by 2028 as of late 2010. The, the preferred plan for retiring it is to attach a slightly modified progress rocket uh, to the ISS and lo- gently lower its orbit so that atmospheric drag increases and then it just kind of will dip into the atmosphere and um, burn up as a complete unit. And that way, um, that way is seen as the kind of simplest way of doing it rather than kind of breaking it up in orbit which risks, you know, kind of fields of space junk going around everywhere um, and multiple missions. So it's the simplest, cheapest and least dangerous to people on Earth as well. They don't have kind of multiple re-entries that need to be kind of monitored and and planned for and stuff. You get it all down in one go, which will be an almighty um, fireball when that happens. Uh, It's going to be quite something. 
Um, yeah. You know, and I think they're going to do it over the Pacific um, or somewhere like that. And no doubt, doubt, you know, no doubt there will be um, a fleet of ships monitoring that um, at sea when it happens and recording, you know, videos for it. It's going to be spectacular. But also, a, you know, a sad, a sad moment. But whatever the future holds um, for the ISS, it has given humans vital experience in living in space um, and, you know, taught really valuable lessons on constructing spacecraft in space, as well as kind of, you know, here on the ground, organising and managing hugely complex projects. And this this puts, you know, all the, the all these five national space programmes, national space agencies... Um, and the 15 member countries are a really good footing um, for the the plans now for um, you know uh, manned spaceflight um, for human spaceflight to go further out into into space. So the ISS still has that role to play, you know, and those further steps include uh, going out towards new goals of establishing the lunar gateway which is a space station in orbit around the moon, um, which NASA has plans to do by 2024, which could be pushed back a few years. And then going on to do the same thing at Mars with a uh, putting establishing another orbital outpost at Mars, um, which would be crewed. Um, and that, that will you know enable all these things to happen. So it's really the kind of stepping stone. The ISS has been the stepping stone on the way to those, to those projects. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's extraordinary because it's the biggest structure ever built in space. So that's, that's right. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it really is. Really is a, a an incredible thing. I mean, um, you know, you you see it, you see it go overhead um, on Earth. You know, you don't get a sense there of the of the scale of it um, uh, as you do kind of from pictures taken from 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 um, low Earth orbit. It's it's a fantastic thing. So to find out more about the ISS's 20th anniversary, take a look at the November issue, where we cover the milestone in detail. Earlier this month, news editor Ezzie Pearson spoke to astronomer and cosmologist Dr Emma Chapman about her new book, First Light, Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time. I'm speaking to Emma Chapman about her upcoming book, First Light, which is all about her research into the epoch of reionisation. So, Emma, what is the Epoch of Reionisation? Well, the Epoch of Reionisation is a period in our universe's history very early on, about 400 million years after the Big Bang to about a billion years after the Big Bang. And what happens during this time is that we go from a universe predominantly filled with neutral hydrogen, that's one proton and one electron coupled up, to a universe about a billion years after the Big Bang, which is mostly full of ionised hydrogen. So that's electron and hydrogen separated. Now that's all quite technical, maybe doesn't light your fire, but actually what this is, is a tracer of something so much more interesting, because what is actually ionising that hydrogen is the first stars, are the first galaxies, the first black holes, possibly even annihilating dark matter. So we only use how this gas changes, and it's the biggest phase change our universe goes through. We use that to really try and dig in to a period of our universe, which we actually don't have any data from. So we're missing a huge chunk of data from our universe's timeline 
And that's what we're aiming to discover. And that's what I talk about in this book. And why is there such a a big chunk of time missing? What's stopping us from researching that so far? It is really far away. So we're in in astronomy, looking back in distance is looking back in time, which is really great. This is because of the finite speed of light. So when we look at the sun, light is eight minutes old. When we look at Mars, it's four minutes old, for example. Um, What we need to do to see this era is we need to look so far away that the light has taken 13 billion years to get to us. So that's very, very hard. Um, We simply haven't had the technology to do that Um, up until now. uh, About 10 years ago, we switched on these radio telescopes, these big radio arrays of thousands of radio antennas, all linking together and all hoping to detect these this this hydrogen ionizing because what we actually see is we see bubbles so we have all this sea of neutral hydrogen and then as the first stars light up in a really dark universe you've got pitch black universe and then suddenly star lights up it ionizes a bubble around it you form a galaxy ionizes a bubble around it and so what we actually see or we hope to see is almost like a swiss cheese in the sky. So we're looking for a a Swiss cheese image. And over the time that we are tracking, so about 500 million years, we're going to build up a home movie of our universe growing up with these bubbles expanding, coalescing, overlapping until we have this ionised universe. And when you consider this chunk of data that is actually missing in our timeline, it's equivalent to if you were looking at a human timeline, you'd be missing all of the information from perhaps the moment of conception, apart from an ultrasound, which is the cosmic microwave background, all the way up to the first day your kids start school. And if you consider all the wealth of information, the amount of formation that happens in those years, you can really understand why astrophysicists such as myself have sleepless nights (laughs) over the idea (laughs) that we are missing all of this information. Because right at the the centre of science is the fact that if you have incomplete data, you're going to come to incorrect conclusions. And when you are looking back to these very, very early eras, the first stars, the first galaxies, how different were they then to what we see today? Completely different. And this is why another motivation for, for looking in this time is not just the missing data, it's what we're actually trying to find. They are extinct species compared to what we have today. So it's a great question. There's a star really close by. Why can't we just look at that one? It's really bright. It's really close. But it's very young. So it's what we call um, a population one star, which means that it's got um, a fairly high metal content. And by that, we still mean it's only, you know, percent level compared to all the hydrogen. Um, But it's got... Um, And by metals, I assume you mean in the astrophysics term of anything not hydrogen or helium. Yeah, absolutely. So we're very used to rounding up big distances in astronomy so we also round up the periodic table because everything was (laughs) hydrogen in the early universe so who cares about the other stuff hydrogen helium metals and so population one the sun quite a lot of metals then you go back a generation population two less metals and then you go all the way back to population three the first stars and these are metal free stars and this really gets to why they're so important because 
in the very early universe, you just had hydrogen and helium. These first stars formed, they were massive, about 100 times the mass of the sun, we think. Um, and what they did was they started the fusion of hydrogen and formation of metals for the first time in the universe. So they lived very, very brief lives because um, with stellar astronomy, the more massive a star, the quicker it burns through its fuel, the shorter its lifetime. So these very large first stars only lived for around a million years compared to our sun, which is about 13 billion years. Um, so when they died, they died in these supernovae and they seeded the universe with the first metals. And with that, what you could do is you could start condensing different kinds of stars. You could start creating galaxies for the first time. So these stars are the reason we are here. If we, you know, they, they created the metals that, that we are made of. And they, they started what is an incredible diversity of structure that we see around us today. And as far as we're aware, how did these, these first stars begin to form? Yeah, um, these first stars began to form mainly because of an underlying dark matter web distribution. And so, so when we think about our early universe, we think very dark. So right at the beginning, you've got a very big ex, you know, explosion. You've got the Big Bang. Everything's hot. Everything's busy. Everything's messy. And then things start to cool down a bit. And about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, you get this cosmic microwave background, um, which we have wonderful images of. But then everything starts to just look a little bit boring. But if you had a different kind of eyes that could see dark matter, what you would actually see is all of this dark matter coalescing into a beautiful web structure. And we've simulated this a lot. And so what we think happens is that the hydrogen gas is gravitationally attracted to this dark matter web. And so this gas all comes together and unlike dark matter, it can actually condense a lot more. It can come together a lot more because it can lose heat. It can interact with each other, which dark matter just doesn't like interacting. Um, and so it can come together and eventually you get hydrogen dense enough. You get lucky clouds of gas, as I call them, that, that come together and can instigate fusion. This is a very specific uh, era of the universe. What was it that personally drew you to study this time that I hadn't got a clue what it was about so <laughs> so I mean it, it, my my career path has been motivated by me going what <laughs> and then going to decide to study it so you know I, I I went into physics because I didn't understand it I went into astronomy and cosmology because I felt incredibly small and I wanted to understand this and um, with the Epoch of Reionization, I mean, what a terrible name. I just thought, what, what is this about? <laughs> what on earth? And then so when I learned all about it, and actually, for me, it's archaeology, almost. So my, my first career uh, desire was to be an Egyptologist and open tombs and all of this. And so when I went into physics and astronomy, I almost made it about the same thing. Like, we've never looked into this time before so for me it really feels like we have found Tutankhamun's tomb and we are opening the door for the first time on this era um you know what are we going to find how exciting like we've got an idea but it's just an idea 
and there was an experiment last oh gosh it was it was 2018 now um called edges which kind of uh, took the temperature of this hydrogen gas just before the epoch of reionization and you know that really pinpointed when the first stars began to form about 180 million years after the big bang but also what it found was completely unexpected and a much, you know, a different topic. But all I'll say is that it found that the gas was much colder. That had large implications. Every single model we had of that early universe hydrogen temperature couldn't fit the data. <laughs> so how exciting, you know, what was going on? There's nothing more interesting than that for me. And you mentioned there sort of one of the things that, that's going on at the moment, but are there any really big questions about this era that you would, that you really want to find the answer to? I would love to know if there are any first stars still around today. So I mentioned that these stars were massive and lived very short timelines, but as with everything, there's a distribution around an average. And so, yes, most of the first stars we believe were very, very massive. But there is a tail of the distribution, we think, and that could have produced stars of around 80% the mass of the sun. And if that happened, then they could actually still be alive today. Now, trying to find them is a field called stellar archaeology. Uh, it's a field that I absolutely adore because they are looking, what we're doing is we're looking within the galaxy for any stars that have very low metals. And the problem with that is that they've gone through 13 billion years of what is pollution, basically. So it's like hanging out your pristine white washing in central London for a year and hoping that it would still be beautiful. It's it's not. And so it's the same with the first stars. We have to look in a in a choice of about you know, 200 billion stars and think, okay, which of these look like a first star? Do some spectroscopy, look at the light coming from the star. That's what that means. Determine what kind of metals are in it and then move on if we haven't found it. And, and stellar archaeology has done really well. They dug down to about uh, a millionth of the iron content of the sun, uh, iron fraction of the sun, sorry, um, that's that's incredible. So watching that field, seeing how far they can go in determining a first star would be would be very exciting indeed. And with that, I think that is a fantastic place to bring this interview to a close. Uh, so thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today, Emma. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and if that has sparked your interest, you can find out more about the Epoch of Reionization and the first stars in Emma Chapman's book, First Light, which is available from the 26th of November from Bloomsbury Publishing. That was Dr. Emma Chapman. Find out more about the first stars, the early universe and the Big Bang on our website at skyatnightmagazine.com. The beautiful Pleiades open cluster, or Seven Sisters, reaches its highest position in the sky on Friday the 20th of October, when it's due south at midnight. With the naked eye, you should be able to make out about five or six of its stars forming the shape of a mini plough but it's a superb object to explore with binoculars as nebulosity can be picked up under good seeing conditions and you'll realise that cl the cluster is in fact made up of many more stars with views of 15 to 30 becoming visible. A hint at the many hundreds that actually make up the cluster. Part of the constellation of Taurus, 
it's an easy target to find. Start from Orion's upper right shoulder, move diagonally up and to the right through the bright star Aldebaran and continue on about an equal distance to the Pleiades, which is visible until May. So that's it from us this month. If you want to discover more great stargazing targets in November's night sky, you can pick up the November issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also have a special report into the discovery of phosphine on Venus and the chances of life on the planet. Go on a telescope tour of eight splendid star clusters that are well-placed in November and examine the ways you could get to space yourself. And that's not forgetting our regular sections, where we bring you the latest news and views from all the branches of astronomy, review the latest observing kit, and give expert advice on imaging the night sky. From us all here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.